Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you all tonight. Trust you're having a good week. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight. We want to look at verses uh, 13 through 20. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 20. And uh, I've titled the message, uh, Paul's Crown of Rejoicing. We all know what that was, right? Well, we'll know by the time we get done here, right? Yeah. Uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we do thank you for the privilege, uh, the opportunity to be here tonight and to uh, share in the things of God together. Uh, thank you for your presence. We are the temple of the living God. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for the family and pray that you would bless the ongoing ministries, Awana Youth Group. Thank you for all the workers and uh, pray that the, the labor in the word would go forth with power tonight. And so Minister to our hearts as we study together, as we pray together. Uh, commit our evening to you now, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> well, you note uh, on the overhead, the theme is uh, the day of Christ, Christ coming for the church, mentioned in every chapter. Uh, we have worked our way through after you have this uh, commendation of a model church in chapter 1. Uh, we have model ministers and their reward in, in chapter 2. And... Uh, in the background here, you know, there are uh, eight negatives and seven positives as Paul is really defending his ministry, as we saw last time. And he is forced to defend his ministry because in the background, it seems like there's, and we will get to this tonight, it seems like there's some Judaizers, some Jewish critics who are criticizing his ministry. And uh, he doesn't elaborate on it, but he is definitely dealing with something. He is defending his ministry of integrity at some great length here in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, we saw last time that he said, we were gentle. We were gentle with you as a mother, uh, as a nursing mother with her children. And we saw that in, in verse uh, 7, in chapter 2, verse 7, we were gentle among you uh, just as a nursing mother. And then you come down to verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father. So there's a great balance in his ministry. There was a gentleness to it, but there was also a firmness to it as, as a father might charge his children. So there was, there was a, a balanced uh, ministry there. And it was to the end, as he says in verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is our destiny as believers, and we should therefore live and walk accordingly. And uh, they, by the way, were very responsive. And that's why he is so, you know, high on this church. He's very excited about what's going on. And he builds on this. We did this, and you responded. And that's where he goes now as we get into our study tonight. Uh, why don't we have somebody read verse 13? Kind of stands by itself. Who wants to read verse 13 for us here tonight? Yeah, Matt? Okay, so he's thanking God as he's now, he says, we charged you as a father, and now he says, for this reason, we thank God without ceasing. This kind of picks up on what he started in chapter 1, way back there in verse 5, where he said, 
Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So this message was well-received, and it was life-changing. And that's what he's recounting here. He's building on that. He says, for this reason, we also thank God. He's very thankful, as he recalls, this is a God thing. This is what God has done. And uh, notice he says, we're constantly thanking God without ceasing. And then he says the reason why. For this reason, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, and that's what they came with, the message from God, wasn't his personal opinions. It was from God. Uh, When you received the word of God, you welcomed it. They received it. They welcomed it. It was a warm welcome. And uh, you welcomed it not as the word of men. Again, it's not their own ideas. And say, well, you know, we've got some great wisdom here we'd like to impart to you. No, no, we have a message from God. Not as a word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. God's message. Remember in the previous verses in chapter 2 here, how he has emphasized the gospel. Uh, How did he phrase it? The gospel of God. Three times uh, we see that in verse 2, 8, and 9. And so, again, it's sourced in God. This is a message from God. This is God's good news. Of course, it's sourced in Jesus Christ as well, who is the God-man. But uh, real emphasis throughout here that the authority of this message is in God, comes from God. You received it not as the word of men. It wasn't presented that way. It was presented as the word of God, which it is. But as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, this is a really powerful verse on the nature of the Word of God. Um, There's something special about the Bible. I mean, you hold the Bible in your hands, there's no other book like this book. I mean, it is the Word of God. And uh, it works. It effectively works. You say, well, I'm not sure. We maybe should try a different strategy. Let's bring in a little psycho- psychology to have some theories out here. Uh, this is really motivating for people. Let's get this philosopher. No, it's the word of God, he says, which also works uh, or effectively works in you who believe. Uh, the word effectively is energio, from which we get our word energy. So you can see it's part of the Greek word there. It is the idea of being supernaturally energized. And, uh, you know, there's a lot in the Bible on this theme. We could go all over the place. But note uh, in Isaiah 55, where God is speaking, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, how much uh, higher are the heavens than the earth? Do you know? <clears throat> he didn't say. Right? So I can't say yeah either. But uh, I think the point is well made. You know, the, the con- yeah, the, yeah, the contrast is like immeasurable. Right? Immeasurable. I mean, that, that's the idea. Now, <laughs> as we're thinking about <clears throat> God's thoughts and his ways, what's he talking about in context here? Well, he's talking about how God works to save people. That's really what he's talking about. And notice what he goes on to say in the very next verses. 
God's ways are higher. As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The setting of this, this promise is in relationship to the power of the word. And people want to think about all kinds of other things as far as, I've got this idea. I've got, God says, I've got a better idea. It's all about my word. And that's an infinitely better idea than anything else you're going to come up with. That setting for, for these verses, for this promise right here, is really powerful in terms of, of God's word. Uh, I, I kind of recoil when people say, well, I've, I've got another idea. And they never say that. They never want to say, well, I want to do away with the word of God. They just want to kind of bring in something additional. Uh, that's, that's a problem. Uh, I really like what uh, Spurgeon said. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Uh, you know, that's what we need to do with the word of God. Uh, it will not return void. It will accomplish what God... Just, just let it loose. Just, that's what, that was Paul's strategy. Came into town. He didn't say, you know, we're going to have to, first of all, uh, develop a report where we're going to be able to get a hearing. Nope. He just came into town, preaching the word of God powerfully. Admittedly, sign miracles were still operative through the apostles. Gave them an advantage in some ways. That's true. But uh, emphasis all the way through here is the word. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Entertainment, you know, we got all the entertainment, all the all the props, you know. Yeah. You're right. Amen. That's exactly right. Amen. And that's exactly the point here, too. Uh, I mean, I think he's, he's emphasizing, you know, it did bring you to salvation, but it, it, we see it continuing to work now out in your lives here, too. And so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure.
That's great, Vince. That's that's really neat. Amen. Yeah, there's a neat package there. Amen. That's really cool. Yeah. I think part of the problem today, today's mm-hmm. modern world, especially as you get down in younger generations, mm-hmm. is when yes, the word of God always works. Mm-hmm. However, it doesn't always deliver the results we want to see out of it. That's and hasn't that always been the case? Yes. Well, amen to that. Uh, I think they've got their own little self-agenda instead of thinking about things through God's lens. And it's always about his agenda, you know. So when the word goes out, I don't know what the outcome's going to be. Right. I know what I'd like it to be. It doesn't mean it's going to be that. Amen. And, you know, I think about Paul's last words to Timothy, in season, out of season. Uh, preach a word. Uh, there's in season where people are responsive. There's out of season where they're not responsive. Uh, what should we do? Uh, well, in season, we preach the word. What should we do out of season? They're not responding. <laughs> Same thing. Preach the word. You know, the answer is always the word. And ultimately, it will accomplish God's sovereign purposes. And, uh, you know, maybe his sovereign purposes, these people had the opportunity. And uh, they're now accountable for that. I mean, that's part of it, too. You know, whatever. We can't say it's a failure. If we, I think we're always a success if we were faithful to pre- preach the word and, and leave that's, it with That's the success. That's the success. Right. Right. And leave it with God. And the psychobabble comes in when they say, well, it should have done this. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's not new. No. I don't think, I don't think there's, there's nothing new. The volume is new. No. The, well, there's nothing new under the sun. The, the, but the volume is new. The volume? The volume, the amount of it, and the fact that most of the, what, what was solid mainstream churches are now falling into that. Well, there's a tremendous amount of apostasy. And I do think as we get toward, towards the end, it will be worse and worse, as, as Paul says in Second Timothy 3. So in that, I think in terms of apostasy, and apostasy specifically relates to those who have heard. Apostasy is not something like, well, these people in deep, dark Africa who never heard the apostatize. No, they didn't, they, they didn't depart from the faith. They never had it. So apostasy is a departure from the truth. And you're right. We see tremendous apostasy today. Uh, I mean, it, it's just been in recent years that in church circles, they were open to things like homosexual marriage. Never before in the history of the church, in any sector of the church, was that ever even thought to be a possibility? It is now. It is now. It's unbelievable. Even in evangelical circles, very soft on this in some in some cases. So, yep, yep. Switch back to the word. Yeah. When you were talking about the power of prayer, I was thinking about Hebrews 4.12. Yeah, well, you're ahead of me. Oh, okay. Go ahead. I'm going to get there in just a second. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sign, sign miracles. He was doing sign miracles. 
That's right. I think sign miracles were an affirmation of the authority that Christ gave to these apostles. And uh, you know, it talks about the signs of an apostle were demonstrated among you, like 2 Timothy 12, 12. So, yeah, I think those sign miracles, they did affirm that these guys were unique, had a special authoritative position from Jesus Christ himself. It was confirmed with sign miracles. So that's why I say, we're not doing that today. I might walk into a community and say, well, you know, hey, uh, I'm here by the authority of God. Fine, but, you know, and the word of God is what I'm doing here. I don't have a sign miracle to accompany that, right? Where Paul did, which that was a little distinction there is what I'm saying. All right, good. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, Marianne. But, but let's, uh, let's look at a couple other uh, verses here. And uh, here in Romans... Uh, we know this verse, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So again, that, the, the nature of the gospel, it's powerful. And then 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Uh, what is he talking about? The word of God, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then, here's our verse, Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. So deep, I mean, you know, it's really kind of hard to make a distinction between the soul and the spirit. There is a distinction there, but it's so deep. We, but the, the, the word of God is able to cut in, make those divisions that we don't even quite understand. And of the joints of marrow and is a discerner and thought, uh, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So it goes deeper than anything else. And it's powerful. It's living and it's powerful. I think I've got one more. Um, oh, before that, I wanted to share with you. When I was in Bible college, uh, we had a professor. And he was trying to uh, argue with us that in order to really defend the faith, you've got to start outside the Bible. You don't start with the Bible. You start outside the Bible. And his argument was, and it was an intellectual argument, and his argument was, if you start with the Bible, that's a circular argument. Because you're starting with the Bible to prove the Bible, and that's uh, intellectually a circular argument. So you can't do that. That's, that's not a legitimate way to approach things. Well, into that context, here comes John Whitcomb coming for a Bible conference at the, at the school I was at. John Whitcomb was a huge on the sufficiency of Scripture, what we were just talking about. You start with the Word of God. It is self-sufficient. It's authoritative. What is the uh, argument, do you suppose, that counters uh, what he was saying about it being a circular argument? What, how would you, uh, how would you uh, defend the sufficiency of Scripture against that argument? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and the other thing I would bring in there is the reality. This isn't just an, a human intellectual argument. I want to bring in the Holy Spirit. That makes all the difference. Now, if you're just having a human uh, debate here, just opinions of men, okay. Uh, it's my ideas, your ideas. We need to go outside for some other authoritative uh, whatever it is. In his case, it was archaeology and that kind of stuff. But uh, when we're talking about the Word of God, remember, it's living, it's powerful. 
Uh, it's, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of just giving the gospel. It is the power. Uh, so we start with the word because of the very nature of it. Yeah. It's also supported by tons and tons of evidence. It's true. I mean, it, it is true, and you can, prove, you can prove it's true. But we don't need it. We don't need any other evidence. In fact, when Paul comes to Corinth, a very Gentile place, he came from Athens, you know, where he did make some intellectual arguments. But he comes to Corinth, and you know what he says? I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Absolutely. Well, that's true. <clears throat> right. Right. Well, and that's true. That's that's key. And there's other things. I mean, you got Israel, God's apologetic. I think that's part of God's apologetic, Israel, the resurrection. Uh, those are, you know, really big ones. Uh, it's kind of like, what does God present forth as far as, you know, the defense of why you should believe in him? It really doesn't go to all these other things that we a lot of times want to bring in. You won't find that in the Bible so much. Um, I think the heavens do declare the glory of God. You can see that from nature, too. God has given us a mind. You don't want to completely say, hey, you know, reasoning doesn't enter in. God does use reasoning, but yeah. I think it's also important to remember in this context that the state of man, apart from God, that we are, and having your doctrine solid in that, because if you understand the state of man as we are without God before redemption, before God intervenes, Mm -hmm. there is no hope and reason. Their minds have been darkened. Right. Yeah, yeah, amen. There, there are differences of thinking among Christians. There, there are presuppositionalists like I am, as my mentor John Whitcomb was. And there are, then there are evidentialists, which you're talking about, where say, you know, we start with the evidence and God uses that too. And he does, but I want to put the emphasis on the word of God. Ultimately, everybody gets there. One, even if you're using other evidences, you ultimately got to get to the Word of God because it's by the Word, it's by the Gospel that we are saved. So, but, uh, you know, just to kind of pick up on what you were talking about, Andrew, my last uh, text here, you know, this is my, perhaps my favorite Gospel text, certainly one of them, where Paul talks about, even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this uh, age has blinded who do not believe. So the Gospel has been presented to them, but they're blind. How come? Well, you got satanic interference, right? you got a blinder who's blinding them. And, and the issue is belief. 
They, they have not believed. And, that, and you have to believe the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. They have not believed. But then he talks about how this happens in verse 6, which is kind of what you were emphasizing, Andrew, the supernatural aspect here. The, the, and, and there's mystery here as far as human response and, and God's working. There is mystery in this. But verse 6, it's all God, it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. This is Genesis 1-3. Let there be light. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel he's talking about. It's all about who Jesus Christ is. And it really does involve a supernatural act of God. Nobody on their own ever seeks after God. Paul is very clear about this in Romans chapter 3. There is none that seeks after God. No, not one. God makes the first move. And then we get into the, the enlightenment of what I call conviction and the enlightenment of conversion. And there's mystery in, in that where we cross the line from conviction to conversion. And I don't have that all figured out. Both are true, but I know it doesn't happen apart from God's supernatural work, that's for sure. Well, that's good, to, good discussion. Notice uh, it effectively works in you who believe. So yeah, the word works. I think you said that, Vince. The word works. And it works. Uh, and note the emphasis here, in you who believe. Uh, this is present tense. Uh, it, uh, it keeps on keeping on. It keeps on working. It's not like, uh, well, the word did a little work in you, but then it's not working anymore. No, it's present tense. It continues to work. Uh, Hebert says, the present tense marks their believing as an abiding characteristic. A genuine faith is a continuing faith. And that's consistent with New Testament teaching. Uh, if you've come to believe... You continue to believe. It's an enduring faith. Keeps on keeping on. And uh, so somebody says, well, it just, it didn't work. Well, you didn't believe. If you really believe, it really works. And that's the emphasis here. It effectively, supernaturally works. And supernaturally energized. Effectively works in you who believe. Uh, okay. Any other thoughts here? Yeah. Uh-huh. I would probably say yes to this theologically because we know people are in blindness, you know, period, you know, before they even know the gospel or hear the gospel. They are blind, you know, spiritually blind. And yet, once they hear the gospel, as, as they, they continue on in that blindness, like I say, I think there's a responsibility to them, especially as far as the light of conviction that God brings there. Uh, in a sense, you're responsible for the light you have seen, and yet you're still blind because of the, the satanic activity that we're talking about here in this verse. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, yeah. I kind of 
and, and they're condemned. But if you back up there in verse 18, they're condemned already. You know, well, look at that verse. Uh, John three eighteen. that's what you're talking about. Uh, he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Right. Well, well, you're already under condemnation, though, whether you, you know, believe or, you know, whether you've never known about belief or not, you're already under condemnation. Yeah. That's why you need to hear the gospel. Yeah, um, you know, you go to the end of that, that, that chapter, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's like the wrath of God is abiding over the whole of humanity. I, I, I hear a little bit like, well, they're only under condemnation because they haven't believed. Well, it's true, they are under condemnation because they haven't believed, but they're already under condemnation before they ever heard the go- about the gospel. Yeah. Right. Nothing. That's right. Exactly. You know, it's one of the problems I really have with Calvinism, and that is God calls everything. Well, you know, you might say, well, is that true in Paul's theology? I think it is. Show me a verse where Paul gives the general call versus the effectual call. It's always with Paul the effectual call. God's will is that all men come to repentance. Right? God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For You're talking Peter. Peter talks about desires. Isn't willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Right. True. That's all. That's everybody. Well, I agree. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. We were talking about the word call here, Right? And how Paul uses the word. Yeah, you do a little research on that. You'll, you'll find it's always the effectual call. Yeah. To sidetrack back yeah. to where we were earlier. Verse 5 of that passage, it says, For we do not preach ourselves, mm-hmm. but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves. What verse are you in? Um, 2 Corinthians 4 5. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so that goes back to where we were. Well, a, yes, amen, for, for sure. Um, yeah. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, 19 20. Okay, what's it say? It says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. So God has already made it manifest in them. That's everybody, mm-hmm. right? For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, that things are clearly seen. Well, amen. Amen. God shows himself to everyone. Yeah, there is some level of light given to everybody. Right. That's true. When they, when they douse that light, they're done. But Paul doesn't use the word called there. That's, that's my point. You go on in Romans, which I hope to get to Romans after Matthew. You get on to Romans, and you get to the, the golden chain, for example, in, in Romans chapter 8. And, and that golden chain is all connected. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. All of that, it's, it's like you can't separate it. 
And that's the God side of things. I don't disagree with what you're saying there. This is that mystery I live with. And we're dealing with that tension again here. And I don't disagree. Yeah, everybody is responsible. I see the onus, even as we were preaching last Sunday, the onus is on you need to respond. The invitation has gone out. The general call is going out. That's right. I agree. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts? I, I agree. Back. I'm not disagreeing with, with your premise there. Uh, I'm getting technical as far as the theology of it when it comes to the effectual call there. But All right. Anyone else? Okay. We've hammered that. Let's proceed. We won't get through this, will we? We're only going to get through one verse tonight. Uh, let's uh, move along here. Uh, somebody want to read 14 through 16? Who wants to read that for us? Yeah, Andrew? For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but Okay, thanks. <clears throat> so he's talking about uh, effectually working in you who believe. What's the evidence presented? How do you see this of it effectively working in them that believe? As he goes on to say here. In what way? Yeah, I want you to look at those verses. Ah, they were willing to suffer, which is tremendous evidence that you have the real deal. And so, yeah. Uh, Well, (laughs) I I was waiting for the word suffer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's see here. Where are we at here? Notice it talks about that you became imitators of the churches of God, uh, which are in Christ, uh, which are in Judea. Uh, so this de- defined the churches and their experience in, in Judea. Uh, Judea is uh, this area here. Uh, what's the hub of, of Judea? Well, it's Jerusalem. And where did the gospel start first? Be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, Judea, surrounding area, Samaria to the ends of the earth. So um, really he's talking about uh, this is a very heavily centralized Jewish area. And uh, so when he's talking here, you became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea. He's talking about, you know, in the first five years of the church, it was really a Jewish church. And especially concentrated in this area uh, around Jerusalem. And uh, notice he says, uh, you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So, there was tremendous suffering by the early church in the context of a, of a Jewish, uh, Judaizer uh, context of persecution. Um, Matthew 13, he's talking about the parable of the, the sower and the soils. He received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So, again, kind of a proof text, if you will, that one of the evidences of genuineness is that you're willing to suffer 
for the word. And that's what they were willing to do. That's, he says, it effectively works you in you who believe. And he goes right in to talking about how they were willing to suffer uh, for the, the truth. And then he describes, uh, you know, at length here, uh, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, persecuted us, the apostles. They do not please God. They're contrary to all men. He's talking about Jews kind of had a a problem with everybody. Uh, They killed the Lord, their own prophets, the apostles. Uh, They don't please God, and they're contrary to everybody. (laughs) This is is kind of like... uh, uh, a problem. Well, we want to be careful. Uh, uh, Mel Couch, Ed Hinson in, in their book uh, talk about, um, you've got to be very careful of the moniker, uh, the Jews are the Christ killers. And, and uh, <clears throat> they're talking about, uh, gospel clearly tells us the Roman soldiers were immediate murderers of Christ, although his death was instigated by the Jews. It was Roman authority that actually killed him. It can also be said that there is a higher sense in which no one killed Jesus since he gave his life freely for others. Theologically, we can also remember that all sinners bear some responsibility for the death of Christ, since it is our sin that made his death a necessary substitution. Uh, he's making a point in context here. And again, I think in the background, you've got Judaizers who are stirring things up against Paul. And so he's kind of, he's really bringing the hammer down on those Judaizers in particular here. Um, verse uh, 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. So he's clearly talking about Jewish resistance. That's the context here. Uh, Forbidding us to speak uh, to the Gentiles that they may be saved. Uh, Phillips says here, They obstructed the gospel at Pisidian, Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, on Paul's first missionary journey. They hindered him at Berea, at Thessalonica, at Corinth, on his second missionary journey. They constituted themselves his bitterest enemies. These are the Jews. Hounded him to imprisonment and death. They did not want the Gentiles to be saved. They did everything in their power to prevent Paul from evangelizing them. Now, that's a good summary statement. That is true. That's kind of the record of the Jews. It's not like they were on board with this. They were very resistant every step of the way, as he's emphasizing here. Okay. Um, And notice he says, so as to always fill up their measure of sins. But the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Uh, we could talk a while about this, uh, this language here, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. It's like uh, you could kind of picture uh, a, a cup and it's being filled up with sin until judgment finally comes. And, and they, they always insist on filling it up until judgment once again comes upon them. Uh, they don't say, you know what, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's repent, let's get right so judgment doesn't come. No, they continue to fill it up. That's, that's been their, their pattern. By the way, we see this often in the scriptures. Uh, Genesis 6.3, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. He is indeed flesh, yet his days will be 120 years. 120 years out, and God said, Hey, 120-year warning. You got the two-minute warning in football. You got the 120-year warning here. It's, it's getting full. Uh, Genesis 15.16, In the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The cup isn't quite full yet. But it's getting there. It's not yet full. Uh, a couple others. Daniel 8, uh, 23. There's a context here, but I'm wanting to make a point here. In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their fullness. And then uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is going to come on the scene. But, uh, so, but note that. When the transgressions have reached their fullness. Matthew twenty three thirty two. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. 
Again, that idea, it's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a level uh, where it's full and uh, Christ says, okay, uh, go ahead and fill it up. Now, uh, many have wondered what uh, this wrath specifically refers to. Does it refer to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70? Does it refer to hell? Does it refer to Israel being set aside during the time of the church age? All of these are possibilities. But the greater context of the book argues for the coming eschatological wrath of the tribulation period. The whole book revolves around this theme. Um, Let's see. What else do I want to say here? Maybe one more here. Yeah. In uh, chapter 1, verse 10, Paul said to the believers that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the day of the Lord wrath that will be experienced in the tribulation period. The church will be delivered from it. Likewise, 5.9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the immediate context of of chapter 5, he has just been talking about the day of the Lord judgment that will come upon the world as a thief in the night in chapter 5. So I think uh, the the greater context here, when he talks about... uh, uh, the wrath that has come upon them to the uttermost. He's talking really about the, the, what is called the time of Jacob's trouble, the climactic time of trouble that will come upon the world with Israel kind of being the centerpiece. So bad, it'll be, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, let's see here if I've got one more. Yeah, Daniel nine twenty four. Seventy weeks are determined. Uh, some translate this are decreed. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Uh, again, the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy has Israel, Jerusalem, as the centerpiece. And God has determined what they're going to go through before we finally get to the kingdom. And they're filling up the wrath uh, to that end. Wrath has come upon them uh, to the uttermost. Verse 17, But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart. Again, it seems his critics are saying, you know, Paul, he spent very little time with you. He doesn't really care about you. That's why he's gone off the scene. And he's saying, no, uh, we've been taken for a short time, but our heart is there, endeavoring more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and, and again. But Satan hindered us. The word Satan, by the way, means adversary. And he is an adversary who's in the business of of trying to seek to hinder God's people. Now, he can only do what God allows, but he does have a fairly long chain yet, it seems, in this age. Uh, He is about the business of hindering us, and we call this spiritual warfare. All right, any thoughts here quickly before we... Yeah. And it would be very hard for Paul to like, wait, these people are finally listening to the gospel. They're responding such a way. I want to be with these people, and yet they've been driven away. Yep. So it's like, we want to get back there. These are the people who have responded to our message. Mm-hmm. These are our brothers. We want to be care for you. Right. We want to help you. Right. And can't you just see the critics coming along saying, see, if he really cared, you know, he, he'd be willing to stay here. He'd be willing to risk it. <laughs> you know, those kind of things. All right. Let's have somebody finish out verses 19 and 20. Who wants to read that? Yes, Amy. Okay, thank you. Uh, He's emphasizing to them how special and precious and how valued they are to him. Uh, What is our hope? Uh, Our hope is our future expectation, uh, what we are anticipating. Uh, What is our our hope? And he's thinking about rewards here. 
What is our hope or joy? The idea of of delight or blessedness. What's the basis of it? Or crown of rejoicing. Uh, By the way, uh, crown. um, When one considers the principle of the cup of iniquity being filled. Well, let's see. I want to go on to my next slide here. We're... (laughs) <laughs> Let's go on to this. Uh, the crown is uh, the word Stephanos. It does not refer to a royal crown such as would be worn by a king. Rather, it refers to the victor's crown or wreath that was given to the winner of an athletic contest. It was associated with a reward or a prize. Literally, in view here is a crown of glory. So he is really saying, um, <clears throat> uh, what is our crown of rejoicing? Uh, literally, boasting or in the sense of... Uh, Joyfully glorying in what God has accomplished through us. Uh, that's, that's the sense. And then he says what it is. Is it not even you? Here's the answer. It's you. Is it not even you? Where? Well, not here, but in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. That's what it's all about. It's all about people. Well, why did Jesus come to the world? Well, it was all about people. Came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, what uh, is our work about? Why, why, why do you leave us here? And why don't we just go to heaven and get saved? Zoop, another one's gone. <laughs> Doesn't happen. We stay here. Why? We have work to do. What's our work about? It's about people. That's right. And what uh, are rewards about? I think it's about how we build into people. It's, I, I often say it's all about Jesus. And it is. But what's Jesus all about? Well, in terms of his mission, in terms of his work, it's all about people. And so Paul says, you know, it's, it's about you. As far as our labor, as far as what we're doing, obviously, it's for the glory of God. But in terms of practical, what, what motivates us, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? And then he says, again, so he twice he emphasizes it, for you are our glory... This is what we exalt in. We say, wow, what, what, what do we say? Yes! That's the idea. Uh, it's you. For you are our glory and joy. So, to wrap, out here, wrap up here, um, my goodness, I got things out of line here. We're not going to look at that either. Uh, Paul says the Thessalonian converts uh, that on Judgment Day they would be a kind of victory prize for him. They would be the fruit of his labors that are offered up before God. They will be the crown of his glory and the source of joy unspeakable. It's all about the people here. It's what Paul's emphasizing. In one form or another, all of God's people are to be involved in the great work of reaching out to and building into people for the cause of Christ. It's one big team effort, and yet all have a part to play, and each one will be rewarded according to the part they played and the quality of their workmanship involved uh, related to the stewardship of their gifts and opportunities. And finally here, uh, Dawson Trotman, uh, you know, the founder of the Navigators, you know, that uh, scripture memory program, uh, founder of the Navigators, used to emphasize to, to the believers that we were born to reproduce. His challenge that lingers to this day was, where is your man? Where is your woman? Where is your boy? Where is your girl? Where is the person that you are building into for the cause of Christ? Can you say with Paul, uh, you know, you're my hope, joy, crown of rejoicing. You are my glory and my joy. Boy, that's saying something really strong about how you view and how you value 
believers that you are building into. Yeah, go ahead, Albert. You're biting at the bit. Yeah, well, amen. That's getting it pretty close. Amen. Very good. Any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Thanks for the good discussion. Good input. All right, let's go ahead and share some.